very cheap and sold very, very dear, he managed to make quite a tidy little income every year. He was a talented salesman, and when buying or selling a piece, he could slide smoothly into whichever mood suited the client best. He could become grave and charming for the aged, obsequious for the rich, sober for the godly, masterful for the weak, mischievous for the widow arch and saucy for the spinster. He was well aware of his gift, using it shamelessly on every possible occasion, and often at the end of an unusually good performance it was as much as he could do to prevent himself from turning aside and taking a bow or two as the thundering applause of the audience went rolling through the theatre. In spite of this rather clownish quality of his, Mr. Voggis was not a fool. In fact, it was said of him by some that he probably knew as much about French, English, and Italian furniture as anyone else in London. He also had surprisingly good taste, and he was quick to recognize and reject an ungraceful design, however genuine the article might be. His real love, naturally, was for the work of the great eighteenth-century English designers. Ince, Mayhew, Chippendale, Robert Adam, Mannering, Inigo Jones, Heppelwhite, Kent Johnson, George Smith, Locke, Sheraton, and the rest of them. But even with these, he occasionally drew the line. He refused, for example, to allow a single piece from Chippendale's Chinese or Gothic period to come into his showroom, and the same was true of some of the heavier Italian designs of Robert Adam. During the past few years, Mr. Boggis had achieved considerable fame among his friends in the trade by his ability to produce unusual and often quite rare items with astonishing regularity. Apparently the man had a source of supply that was almost inexhaustible, a sort of private warehouse, and it seemed that all he had to do was to drive out to it once a week and help himself. Whenever they asked him where he got the stuff, he would smile knowingly and wink and murmur something about a little secret. The idea behind Mr. Boggis's little secret was a simple one, and it had come to him as a result of something that had happened on a certain Sunday afternoon nearly nine years before, while he was driving in the country. He had gone out in the morning to visit his old mother, who lived in Sevenoaks, and on the way back the fan-belt on his car had broken, causing the engine to overheat and the water to boil away. He had got out of the car and walked to the nearest house, a smallish farm building about fifty yards off the road, and had asked the woman who answered the door if he could please have a jug of water. While he was waiting for her to fetch it, he happened to glance in through the door to the living room, and there— not five yards from where he was standing, he spotted something that made him so excited the sweat began to come out all over the top of his head. It was a large oak armchair, of a type that he had only seen once before in his life. Each arm, as well as the panel at the back, was supported by a row of eight beautifully turned spindles, the back panel itself was decorated by an inlay of the most delicate floral design, 
and the head of a duck was carved to lie along half the length of either arm. Good God, he thought, this thing is late fifteenth century. He poked his head in further through the door, and there, by heavens, was another of them, on the other side of the fireplace. He couldn't be sure, but two chairs like that must be worth at least a thousand pounds up in London. And oh, what beauties they were! When the woman returned, Mr. Boggis introduced himself and straight away asked if she would like to sell her chairs. Dear me, she said, but why on earth should she want to sell her chairs? No reason at all, except that he might be willing to give her a pretty nice price. And how much would he give? They were definitely not for sale, but just out of curiosity, just for fun, you know.